This is FinTech Takes, the podcast keeping you in the loop on all the latest FinTech trends, news, and ideas. I'm Alex Johnson, creator of the FinTech Takes newsletter, your host and self-confessed FinTech nerd. Let's go. Hello, and welcome back to Bank Nerd Quarter, everyone's favorite banking podcast. I am joined, as always, by my co-host, the lovely Kia Hazlitt, banking and fintech editor at Bank Director. Kia, how are you? Good. Happy New Year, Lunar New Year. I remember that you we must well. have been doing this podcast for a full year because I remember wishing you Lunar New Year last year. That is true. Happy Year of the Dragon to those who are listening. Yeah, the other uh, thing I was hoping that you could give us just a quick report on before we dive in is, I don't think we've talked since Acquire or Be Acquired, everyone's favorite I don't think we have either. banking conference. And, and you were like deeply involved in the program, obviously. So give us a report. What were the highlights? Yeah. So it's funny because I will be talking with my coworker or my colleague, Emily, about AOBA for on Breaking Banks shortly after this. I will be doing an AOBA recap. But you know, AOBA's, it was our 30th anniversary. So that was really exciting to both think going forward, but also to really reflect on how much the banking industry has changed in 30 years since we've been having this conference. Wow, 30 years. That's amazing. Right? Yeah. And since I've joined the company, there's been a more intentional tracking, like having technology tracks and sessions, not just in the breakout, but kind of on main stage, but very mindful of trying to make it the most two and a half productive days in banking there's now, you know, general session main stage and there's now like Finex Tech main stage, which I was uh-huh. on a lot. Yeah. And, you know, thinking about, I joke that I don't write about technology. I write about how to make a decision and how to execute and technology. The decision is often involving technology. Uh. So you need to think about the considerations for that. But yeah, it kind of, that was kind of a theme that I noticed was, you know, not just why you should add technology, but what strategic objective is technology supporting? Yeah. And what do you need to make the technology work well? I often think about the role that like data play in banking and, you know, thinking about CECL implementation and now connecting that to like AI, that this like, you know, you kind of need really, really good data to kind of do a lot of things. CECL, technology, like certain types of technology, like loan origination or yeah, yeah. analyzing customer transaction and then thinking about AI. So those were the kind of the two things that I thought about was like, how do banks make a decision and execute on that? And why would a bank make this decision? And then also do like, what is the state of a bank's data? And how is that going to determine what choices they have available to them or what their first steps should be? And then, you know, if you don't, I was kind of like, I always feel this, but I feel like we're at like kind of a point of no return for some things in banking that if you don't make a choice this year, that in like five years, it will be hard to be independent. Like it might be hard to be independent today, but in five years, but you're kind of setting yourself up for the future bank. And in five years, what will it look like? So if you don't have certain things today, if you're not adding certain things today or capabilities, it's, you know, you're just kind of picking a path. And in five years, we'll see, you know, who kind of is still around. So that's like, those are kind of the things that I was thinking about. Yeah, no, that makes sense. I When I was at Cornerstone Advisors, they obviously do their what's going on in banking survey every year of bank executives. And one of the things that always struck me about that survey was that there was a lot of, well, we're going to do this this year. You know, like we're going to upgrade our 
digital account opening capabilities this year. And so you go, okay, yeah, that sounds great. And then you'd ask them the same questions the next year. Next year. And they go, yeah, we're going to upgrade our digital account opening capabilities. You're like, did you say that last year? They're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But this year we're like definitely going to do it. And then like, it'd go like over and over and over again. It'd be the same technologies at the top of the list every year. And it kind of goes to your point about like, oh, I'm definitely going to get to that. I'm definitely going to get to that thing. But I think you are right. Like for community banks in particular, it seems like we are getting to the point where there's very little time left to push it off one more year before you're putting your bank in like just a completely different place, which then feeds into acquire or be acquired. Right, right. And I don't know why it feels like this year was really the point of no return. I think the maybe proliferation of technology, the seasoning of technology, you know, like, I don't even think we can call most of these vendors new or, you know, like, I don't want to say innovative, but like kind of novel, right? Like there is kind of enough use cases. You're not the first, you know, like penguin off the cliff or whatever. (laughs) And then certainly you've hopefully had enough time to do the learning. So now it's really about the decision making and the execution. If you're in the information gathering stage, you know, and then you think you're, you know, you're going to take six months to do that and then three months to do due diligence or whatever. Now we're looking, we are actually, you know, at September. Right, and that's next year, yeah. And so I do think that it just feels like, you know, in some ways you're like, I think we're kind of having some of the same conversations and I'd really like to see what's possible yeah. now that you've implemented some of these things, so. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, I will say I was very sad to miss AOBA this year. I had gone the year before. I really enjoyed it. Schedules didn't really work out for me to be able to go this year. But I will say to anyone listening, if you haven't been to AOBA, it's a conference you go. I have to go to at least one time because it's unlike any other banking or fintech conference I've ever been to. So Kia, hopefully I'll be able to be back next year. Well, I appreciate that. And we did miss you this year. There's a lot of accounting, very, very bank nerd topics that I know <laughs> I'm excited about. I definitely am. I mean, I know they keep you very busy, so it'd be difficult to record a live version of Bank Nerd Corner from we AOBA. Had but a this year, did we you? Gosh. I made it. I okay. Made it. I all right. Like, all right. Next year. Sorry, I got to record. Yeah, things. yeah, yeah, yeah. Like Kia, we can't. I can't spare her. I need. I need her for Bank Nerd Corner. So okay. Well, we'll we'll do that next year. Uh, in the meantime, some stuff has been happening over the last month yeah, or so. There's some other news. There's some other news, and so let's get into some banking news. Kia, there's one that I think you reluctantly want to tell us about. Yeah. So Alex, I normally leave the bank analyst your reports to you. Oh, ha ha ha! Yeah, know. yeah, yeah. I'm I'm an expert <laughs> in all those things. I do have to bring to, you know, I think we do need to talk about what's happening at New York Community Bank. So if this is a bank you've heard of before, January 30th, it's because they were the successful bidder and acquirer of the failed signature bank, taking on some of the CNI loans and some, you know, some of the deposits. The bank had also acquired a regional mortgage lender out of Michigan, Flagstar Bank. And so four months earlier. And so these two deals rapidly increased the size of the bank. Now, you know, in 2023, that seemed to work in New York Community Bank's favor. They recorded a very large purchase accounting gain from the failed bank deal. And it really juiced the earnings for a little bit based on, you know, how you have to account for these failures. But for fourth quarter 2023 and year end 23, there were several downside surprises in the earnings. Uh And it has cause a chain of events, chain reaction that the bank is grappling with today. And because part of me gets really excited when everyone's like, wants to talk about like, 
balance sheets and bank accounting. And then it very quickly, it always quickly gets away from me. And then it becomes something else. And I, I always want to say like, no, but it's not that it's not that. So this is my time where I get to try to do my best to correct the record. So the bad things that happened were that non-performing assets or NPAs grew to 442 million at year end 23, which is 0.38% of total assets on 38 basis points. And then um, non-performing loans were 428 million at year end or 0.51% of total loans. The allowance for credit losses, which is the money the bank has to set aside for all lifetime losses, was almost a billion dollars at the end of the year or a 232% of non-performing loans. So they have 200% more in reserves than they have in, in NPLs. But during the fourth quarter, so quarter over quarter, the bank records a $550 million provision for credit losses. So that's like the quarterly charge. Yeah. That's a big increase from third quarter of $62 million. And then they charge off also during the quarter $185 million compared to just $24 million. The charge offs were driven by primarily two loans. So $185 million in charge offs could be attributed to two loans. I got to say, the, man, community banking is wild where they'll be like, yeah, we had kind of a bad quarter. One loan went bad. You're just like, oh, well, my God. Uh, yeah, like, so I think that's some of the context <laughs> that's missed because I, you know, honestly, yeah. um, you, okay, so let's go into these two loans because it's not even that bad. <laughs> the two loans, one is a co-op loan that's not even in default and is pre-funded, but because they want to sell this loan, they have been holding uh, it, but they want to sell it. Yeah. They have to take a charge on the loan and the charge is an interest rate charge. It's not even... Like it's a performing loan, but because the you know it was made at a lower rate than they're going to current market rate, yeah. they have to charge the loan. Yeah, and you kind of see this again with like bank M and A, where you have to kind of assign interest rate marks because the loan's just not worth as much, even if the loan is performing. Right, it's a rate mark, not a credit mark. It's still a mark, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The one was a charge off for an office loan that went into non accrual based on evaluation. So that's. Those are just results. That's just nuts and bolts, earning, you know, quarterly earnings. But then a couple of other announcements also come out during the fourth quarter, which is that the bank ends up reducing its dividend from 17 cents a share to five. This allows them to build capital faster. And Bankrag blog pointed out that right now the OCC does have a non-objection relationship with the bank for its dividends. And so this was probably like something that they received feedback on and that given the approvals for the Flagstar deal, as well as the approval for the signature deal, this was something that was conditioned and should maybe have been seen as like a possibility a little bit sooner than it was announced. Yeah. The other thing too is the bank becomes more liquid. They added $6.7 billion in wholesale borrowings. So they're now at $20 billion. This is a 50% increase relative to the first to the quarter prior. And this, the, the bank is just more like what they just have more cash on hand. They've strengthened their risk management process. And then at some point, it was pointed out, they let go of their chief risk officer and their chief audit officer. And this was discovered after these negative earnings. Uh-huh. So that's actually what happens uh, or what they announce. And then what happens is the stock sells off a lot. Yeah. And Moody's, like, so then there's this initial sell off. Then Moody's announces that they've downgraded the bank's bond or rating, bond rating to junk or to the junk level. Um, I think it's like a high D, like high D, like a D plus right now or something. Maybe like C minus D plus. I don't know when the junk levels are. Yeah, yeah. And that because they say there's a lot of governance concerns and operational issues. And that's like, those are both two accurate things. 
But then what I felt like I was seeing for about a week is a big discussion about the bank as being troubled or close to failure. Right. On Friday, and I don't know if you saw this, there was like failure watch for New York Community Bank. And I thought that that was so insanely misplaced and such a misunderstanding of what was happening and really obscures like what's actually going on and what's going to have to happen next. And I think a lot of people, one, kind of don't remember that the SVB failure was anomalous. Yeah. Very specific. And they also kind of don't understand the full mechanics of a bank failure, but they've just seen a couple and they're like, well, this is how it always happens. And I'm here to correct the record. This is not how I always think. (laughs) So it just went from really, from being like really interesting to being really stupid really fast. Yeah. Now, to their credit, New York Community does a couple of things. They elevate the former CEO of Flagstar, which Flagstar, before it was acquired, had a number of regulatory issues. I remember. Yeah. And so he's still, you know, they brought him on, they keep him on the board, and then they elevate him to executive chairman. They also disclose their deposit stability because this is yeah. actually why people are being stupid. Yeah. Yeah. They actually, like, I think they assume that these results that depositors care about how much money the bank made. And if the bank reports that two loans took a charge and the dividend is cut, they're going to pull their deposits. Like that's literally like what it seems like if A, then B. Yeah. And so the bank says that deposits are actually up from year end. So through February, total insured and collateralized deposits are 72% of total deposits. The bank has more than $10 billion of reciprocal deposit capacity. Yep. It only has $22.9 billion of uninsured deposits. 90% of the top 20 deposit relationships are fully insured or collateralized. The bank also has $37.3 billion of liquidity, which is a coverage ratio of 163% of uninsured deposits. So if all the deposits left, they were at 163% of uninsured deposits. Yeah. They also have $17 billion of cash on their balance sheet and $6.1 billion in uninsured encumbered or unpledged securities. Also, you know, we've talked about this before, but they have been they have a fully collateralized credit facility at the New York Federal Reserve Bank, which is their discount window connection. Hey. And they have excess lendable collateral at the FHLB of New York, totaling 14.2 billion. So I would say this bank is extremely liquid. Yeah. And probably like I'm not saying they can't have a deposit run because insured deposits can run. That's, you know, people can sure. worry about their money. But this seems like a bank that could probably with like have all of their uninsured deposits leave tomorrow and stay alive, stay up, stay solvent. Yeah. So, you know, I think that, you know, the bank did some things right and some things wrong. But, I, you know, I think I always prefer to see action versus inaction. I think, you know, in 2023, we saw a lot of banks that were wait and see and then they acted too late. Right. I'd rather, you know, if your bank has to take a negative action, take it sooner than later. Your first loss is always your best loss. So the transition of a CRO and CAO without finding someone with the, that big bank experience, I think is really important. But I think, you know, people were really like concerned that the bank just like doesn't have one right now. And they'll remember that at SVB, they also didn't have a chief risk officer for right. an extended period of time. The liquidity looks good. I think that was really important. I don't think the bank received equal credit to the sell-off that they had received for bringing in all that liquidity. I also think it's really reasonable that a bank with a large rent control portfolio will need to build its allowance period. Like yeah. I like, I think that <laughs> that that should what should have um 
what was confusing was like, why has it been taking so long to build the allowances? Yeah. To see the charge offs. We have been waiting for credit to crack for a year. At least yeah. I have. Yeah. I think you want to see a gradual build of the ACL, but genuinely Cecil, the rules of Cecil are that if the lifetime loss of a loan is increasing, you have to increase your reserve and you want to be rec- increasing the ACL before you take the charge off. So it's really good that it's ACL is a billion but their charge-offs are 1.8 or 1.85 million, right? Like that's- Yeah, they're like way that's ahead of that. Yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah. You don't want to see ACL and a, you don't want to see the same amount of ACL building or the provisioning and the same amount of charge-offs in the same quarter, right? That means like they're not CECLing correctly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They're behind the curve a bit. Yeah. It is really interesting, right? I mean, I kind of to your larger point, the thing that I struggle with this is- we want banks to do exactly what these guys are doing, right? Like, okay, you had a bad quarter, right? Like some loans. I mean, it sounds like the loans even weren't like that badly performing, but like you had to do some accounting stuff to adjust some loans that aren't performing quite the way that you would want. All right, so that's going to impact earnings. Fine. But like, to your point, all of the things that they're doing are proactively making sure that they're in a highly liquid position to absorb any stress to the bank, right? Like they're doing exactly the things. They're they're tapping the discount window. They're making sure they have unpledged they're collateral with they Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're <laughs> able to. They've they've lined that up. But I mean like, but that's a good point. But like that's why signature failed, right? Like Right. They weren't prepared. They weren't prepared. And but also the thing the other thing too is I want visible signs that a bank is looking at their poor credit book and being like, hey, some of these loans aren't going to make it they have a lot of refi risk. Right. I would probably say New York community historically has carried a lot of refi risk in order to have much safer credits, right? Yeah. They, they play in the rent control space in New York, which apparently is like a very weird apartment market and commercial real estate market, but historically has very, very good credit performance, but had a lot of interest rate risk yeah. potentially yeah, yeah. and refi risk. And now the bank is grappling with that specific risk it has. Yeah. And it has to do something, right? Like there's no, if the bank's not doing something, I would argue that they're not paying attention to the rising risk in the bank, right? Right, right, right. But the problem is, and this kind of ties back to like why, maybe why banks were acting sort of stupidly last year and leading to some problems. Like the market punishes this behavior, right? I guess that's kind of the thing that I, yeah. yeah, Yeah. And like, and I totally get it from the bank's perspective because it's like, to your point, you want to be perceived as being proactive, right? Like we have risks, we're trying to manage them. We had kind of a a bad stretch there, but like we're trying to like be proactive in managing these risks and recognizing these risks. And the market punishing that by their stock sell-off and by Moody's downgrading them, and then by people sort of assuming that their stock performance has anything to do with their safety and soundness as a bank. Like to me, that's the thing that's changed, right? It used to be like, sort of stock was over here, performance of the bank was over here, and every once in a while they would cross over. And now it's like you have these people, these amateur bank analysts on Twitter who are talking about this bank you know, potentially failing. And it's like, yeah. no, it, it has nothing to do with that at all. In fact, they are being proactive in a way that's probably shoring up their safety and soundness, even though it's degrading their ability to give a dividend temporarily, right? Like that's yeah. that's a very reasonable thing to do in the short term. Well, and the other thing too is most banks don't fail through a deposit run, but obviously banks need to be really, really sensitive to that. Most banks fail because they carry so many losses that it ends up eroding and sucking up all the capital. And then you just have a slow capital decline. And so, you know, in some ways, even, you know, cutting the dividend is painful. I'm not team dividend. I I think <laughs> dividends are weird. 
debt obligations that banks sign themselves up for. And it is sure. crazy. It is crazy to me that a bank, anyone would criticize a bank for cutting its dividend in order to conserve capital as if the dividend has a superior lien position yeah. to scoring up capital ratios. I also think it's fine that, you know, obviously the right, I think people are wondering, you know, well, did the regulator make them do this or did the bank do this? The bank is now playing above a hundred billion. Yeah. It got there pretty, pretty rapidly. I'm glad that the bank is being openly responsive to regulators. Whether or not they want to do this, they are doing it. And I think that we saw, you know, some of the bank failures. We didn't see the responsiveness to regulatory feedback. We yeah. saw a lot of complacency around, oh, well, we have relationship deposits. They'll never leave or we have such good credit risk. So we don't have these loans don't yeah. have any forms of risk, right? And this is not a bank that is selling us that story. This is a bank that's like, hey, we're willing to do what it takes to be successful. And oftentimes the most painful parts of growth are the earliest stages where like <laughs> yeah. the shortcomings are really identified and you really realize there's a big delta between where you are today and where you want to be. And then you take a really painful public step to get there. And so I just you know, whether like, I don't know if New York community makes it through next week. I don't know if they make through the week after, but like I can actually, you know, can say that this is a bank that for, you know, at least for the fourth quarter in 2023, try to position themselves to be ready for the next stage of their growth and the next stage of the credit cycle. And so I really love to see some of that reflected in the reporting. And I really, and then we'll talk about this later, but like, I do not care about the stock price. I like. <laughs> I, I would like to see so much less emphasis on what people who don't want to own the stock think, right? Yes. These are people who don't want to be in the stock. So their opinion matters maybe a lot less to me. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree with that. Save the rest of that rate because we're going to circle back to that. <laughs> but the short answer is people need to calm down a bit. Okay, uh, can I jump us to our next story? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so this is what from a little while ago, but I did get a chance to talk about it with you. So I wanted to bring it into the uh, podcast. Are you familiar with Panacea Financial? A little bit. I remember reading about it and trying to figure out what bank was behind it. And yeah. if it was a bank that had just rebranded itself or if it was like truly a, a distinct neobank. And I think I remember it because it like made a lot of money one quarter. But this, yes. the news you have is newer. I have new news. Yes. So Panacea yeah. Financial, which is a neobank, a digital bank that serves healthcare professionals. So doctors, dentists, veterinarians got its start by helping those people refinance their loans, even going into like last year of medical school or during their residency. Yeah. And then they've slowly been kind of building more of a full service digital bank for healthcare professionals, which serves both the individual, but also like loans to start your own practice, that kind of stuff. So it's really focused on the healthcare industry, which, as you know, is a very popular industry within financial services, particularly like community banks and regional banks just love surveying doctors, dentists, veterinarians. There's a very good... You can buy it. Oh, it's... I mean, it's really kind of a great market, right? Because like high income, generally a fairly stable profession. There are a lot of people who start their own practices. So there's like capital needs that they have. So it's it's a very like highly competitive space. And Panacea has, to your point, been very successful at building out sort of a lending and then slowly over time a deposits business working with those healthcare professionals. So 
Recently, they raised a $24.5 million Series B round from Valar Ventures. And this is pretty interesting because, A, that's a fairly big round, particularly for neobanks or niche neobanks these days. That's not like in 2020 and 2021, investors couldn't wait to give sort yeah. of niche neobanks that were going after specific segments of the market lots of money. That's not true anymore. And so I think the fact that Valar signed up for this round is pretty indicative of the fact that they believe Panacea is pretty different than your standard kind of niche neobank. And going to your point, the only other funding that Panacea had raised up until now was from a small bank based in Virginia, I believe, called Primus Bank. Are you familiar with Primus? Okay, this is only in regards to trying to figure out if Primus had, because I think Primus had changed its name. They had. Yeah, it was another bank in Virginia. I used to live in Virginia, so I was trying yeah. to figure out what bank this was. Yeah. And then trying to figure out its relationship to Panacea. Yes. Which is like most of my job, by the way. No, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and, and as we've talked about before, like banks have very similar names and lots yeah. of confusing structures. So it's totally understandable that you'd be confused. And it's kind of a unique relationship because Primus was the first and only outside investor in Panacea. And they were also Panacea's banking partner from a banking as a service perspective. And so all of the loans that Panacea were doing were made originated through Primus. And all of the deposits that Panacea has been gathering more recently have been sitting with Primus Bank. And what's interesting is, going to your point about like the amount of money that Panacea has been making, if you go back and look at the quarterly earnings for Primus Bank last year, on those earnings calls, they talk a lot about Panacea. And in particular, there was this quote from the CEO of Primus that kind of stuck with me, which was that they were basically saying, hey, we could be doing double the amount of lending volume with Panacea if we could accommodate it through our balance sheet, but we can't. And so there was this sort of like very like constraint-based way that they talked about it, where it's like, look, our balance sheet doesn't really allow us to take on... You have to raise... The bank would have to raise more capital in order to do more lending. In order to do more lending. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, and Panacea was driving like mortgage lending for Primus, and they were driving like a lot of low-cost deposits for Primus. And so they were sort of spun up about as like intensely as it was possible for Primus to do. And what that suggested to me at the time was that the next step for Panacea is going to be figuring out how they can grow beyond premise. And so, well, I have got no sort of indications publicly that you know they're planning to bring on more bank partners or do anything else. The fact that they've raised this $24.5 million Series B round suggests to me that they are thinking about like, well, what does this business look like kind of grown up to the next level? And interestingly, The other thing that they announced recently was that they had hired Ryan Gordy as their new CTO. And his background is kind of interesting because he served in various tech roles at Seacoast Bank. He served as a consultant for a while at Ernst & Young. And then most interestingly to me, he was a fairly senior technology executive at KeyBank, which is also another one of these regional banks that has made going after doctors, dentists, and veterinarians a very key part of its strategy. And so... I'm very, very curious to see what this new CTO, what this new round of funding, and what this sort of really seemingly very strong digital bank serving this industry, 
what they're going to do sort of growing beyond this initial kind of unusual relationship that they have with this one community bank that was both their investor and their banking partner. Okay, this is going to sound so dumb, but like, I thought Panacea was like a digital brand of the bank. And I didn't realize it was a separate neobank, like entity from premise. Yeah, like, no, I not, not, not dumb at all. And no, it's not dumb. And, and even like on their website early on, I don't know if this is still true, but when I was looking at them, Panacea had a thing at the bottom saying like a division of Primus Bank. Yeah. And so it did like, it very much did look like that. And I've gotten to know some of the folks over at Panacea over the last like six months. And they clarified for me and this recent funding round sort of suggests that this is true, that even though it said a division of Primus and they were obviously working very closely with Primus, that the ownership structure is not, they're not owned by Primus. Primus is one investor, but it's a separate yeah. company that is now kind of growing up and growing beyond premise. So it's kind of, I don't know, I haven't seen a whole lot of examples of, obviously there are banks that will invest in fintech companies, but a lot of that investment either is a big bank like Capital One or something that has a ventures arm that like invests in fintech companies, or it's smaller banks that collectively invest through a separate company like Bank Tech Ventures or Canopy yeah, Ventures or whatever. Important. Yeah. And I rarely have seen a community bank invest individually by itself in a fintech company and then also be the banking partner right. of the fintech company. That's very unusual. Again, I just think like, well, why didn't you just stand this up as your own bank brand or yeah. acquire? It is interesting that you know, I would say that this is like a material relationship for the bank that they invested in the company. Yep. They accept the deposits from yeah. this company, they yeah. make the loans of this company. Very and dependent then, on this company, I would yeah, say. Yeah. The, to think that like premise is either going to raise this capital to make loans, question mark, and then sell them. Yeah. Panacea would use this capital to make loans. Yeah. Or Panacea like now needs to expand their banking relationships because they can't they're they're you know they're they're, they're growing but yeah. yeah I mean that's just <laughs> it's just a little weird and I I you know to me it's like you know I think it's a really good business model and I'm kind of surprised that premise doesn't want to have doesn't just want to acquire it and then become this bank yeah but, you know I you know it kind of makes sense it'd be a monoline or there'd be a concentration risk but it's a strange arrangement I've always been it is. interested in the banks that start fintechs and then spin them out. Yeah, which is not like uncommon, right? Because like Live Oak Bank has done that a few times with various things. So you do see these banks that are like a little ahead of the curve relative to their peers and like we're going to start or incubate these fintech companies. And then like, I guess the value is to let it or to spin it out. Yeah, well, or like you retain some ownership in it, but like it grows beyond what you were doing. I mean, I, I guess like it's kind of a healthy model in the sense that like, you know, it, it kind of reminds me of being a parent where it's like, Hey, now you're ready to step out into the world, but like come now back and visit, you know? Yeah, yeah. Like it's, it's it, it is, it does have that sort of bittersweet sort of element to it a little bit. And so, but at the same time, like they can't live at home with you forever, right? They can't live on your balance sheet forever. They have to move out and kind of start their own lives. So, yeah, I'll be very curious to see what Panacea does. I also think there's an opportunity for them to this is not exactly the right word, but like kind of franchise what they do a little bit, because I do think that there are a lot of other banks like Premise that would love to serve healthcare professionals in their markets. And so I also could see a model where they go out and get other bank partners, but the nature of that BAS relationship is a little more kind of even where 
the bank has provided services to Panacea, but Panacea is maybe also like white labeling or providing some of its technology back to the bank. So I they're kind of charting a slightly different course within the banking as a service world, which as I've been writing about in my newsletter a lot, like people better figure out a, a different course to, to do in Bass because the current model is not working very well. So I don't know, maybe this becomes a model for other folks as well. Yeah, I agree. And I do think it's interesting that they've more people don't want to serve doctors. Everyone should want to serve. I mean, they're sloppy payers. So like you do get a certain amount of like, hey, you know, you're 60 days past due. Could you maybe pay us? But like, it's always like sloppiness. It's not like, yeah, right. I don't have any yeah. money, you know? And so yeah, the cash flow is figured out. Yeah, 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 yeah. So they're a little uh, aggravating sometimes to work with, but generally very, very good business. And, you know, like Fifth Third, Key Bank, like all of these guys, like they're like a death match right now to try to get these exact same businesses. So I do think, Panacea has an opportunity to sort of expand in this area. I'd also be interested to see, like, again, I think of Panacea like very similar to Laurel Road. And again, as it's just a That's brand. That's exactly extension. what it is. That's exactly, yeah, except it's not. It's not a new bank, but yeah. then to think like about the lending relationship and seeing, you know, some most of these fast players are deposit relationships, but what does yeah. it look like from your lender perspective to have different bank partners and maybe white labeling is the right way to go. And so kind of <laughs> for a fast partner to white label it's uh, technology. So then another bank can stand up its own digital brand. Like, <laughs> you're all collapsing into one thing. You know? I know. I know. Yeah, no, it's very, very true. I, I feel like, you know, 10 years ago, there used to be like very specific models that were like distinct from each other. And now it's like when we talk about Bass and FinTech investment, all this stuff, like they're all like melding together in these they're very, <laughs> yeah, they really are. You know, like the, the entire FinTech ecosystem is like collapsing in on itself like a star. So Anyway, one to watch and one to pay attention to. Maybe we can revisit this in a, uh, a future episode. Kia, you have one more news story for us. Why don't you uh, share yes. that one? So also, again, in the credit should have cracked by now uh, vein of storytelling, the New York Fed highlighted in one of their recent posts on their, their Liberty Street blog that auto loan delinquency is, has increased. This might not be the most surprising thing in the world if you think about what we've seen from the supply chain and pricing perspective of cars. The car prices increased a lot during the pandemic. And as a result, the loans that were needed for these cars also increased a lot. So loans have increased to about, or apparently they've been, been increasing about 1% every year and now were $18,000 in the first quarter of 2020. So that was the pandemic quarter. And so when people buy a new car, they increasingly need to take out a loan to finance that car, either all of the car or a portion of the car if they've got a down payment or maybe a trade-in. And it's funny because I'm actually one of those people who bought a new car in, in November 2021. Yeah, me um, too. Have a loan. And so origination, the average amount of newly originated auto loans has increased or increased by 11% through 2020 and another 10% on top of that in 2022. So by, you know, Car origination loans had gone from 18,000 in Q1 20 to nearly 24,000 yeah. in year end 2022. This is clearly unsustainable. So you can, yep. should, and then, you know, adding to that, like interest rates have increased, right? Yep. So even as prices and auto loan originations have started to fall post 2022, yeah. this amount of stress, financial stress, the unaffordability of these loans, as well as changes in the economy. So overall inflation, potentially some of the pandemic's stimulus savings coming off have made these newer loans that were made at the highest levels or highest origination amounts 
harder to afford. So loans that opened in 2022 and 23 are so far performing worse than older loans yeah. because in part, you know, the higher prices and higher interest rates. So this is kind of like a perfect storm for delinquent for conditions of indicating delinquency. Yep. All generations are experiencing delinquency transition rates that are above pre-pandemic levels yeah. or with millennials and boomers above their pre-pandemic levels. And you have a note here that audit auto credit availability has declined. So credit is tightening. So we're, you know, we're having a little bit of a correction in this space. Car loans are very interesting. Consumer loans, they've in the recession had better credit performance than homes. People would rather lose their homes than lose their car. But I think, you know, back then cars were also had um, affordability. Oh yeah. Um, And so the cars were more affordable. The loans themselves are more affordable. Yeah. It was possible to refinance at a lower rate yeah. when rates drops to zero. And we're kind of in that opposite position right now. So it doesn't surprise me that people can't afford their really expensive car loan on their overinflated car price. It just kind of like it sucks and it's sad. And it kind of is this backlash to what we've been seeing since 2020. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, I think... This is a tough one, right? Because there's like all these different drivers to your point that are converging together to be a perfect storm, right? So one is, as you said, during the pandemic, it was just impossible to get cars, right? And so like we had a supply chain issue. I've told this story on other podcasts, but I tried to buy a minivan all the way through like 2020, 2021, 2022, 2023. And like, they were impossible to find because they don't actually make that many minivans anymore. But like I paid an embarrassingly large amount over sticker price on a minivan that was lately used. And I was like thrilled to get it, right? So like just the constraint from a supply chain perspective and the resulting impact on price, both for new cars and used cars, that was like one driver, right? So we have that. But then we also have interest rates going up. And so you're taking out a loan on the car And the loan itself, the interest you're going to pay is just more on the car. So those two factors. But then the third one that you didn't really talk about, but I think has also been a part of this. And this is the like me putting my Elizabeth Warren hat on for a minute and like, you know, shaming these greedy capitalists. But there is definitely a dynamic that's been happening even before the pandemic where dealers were making more money on the loans than they were making on the cars. And this is a trend that's been happening for a while, right? And so, you know, you go in and you buy a car and like, and there's actually stories about this that have been reported in the New York Times and elsewhere. But there are people who said, yeah, I went to go buy a car. I told them that I wasn't going to use financing and they actually refused to sell me the car, right? Because dealerships were like, no, I can't make any money if I sell you the car. You have to get financing with it. And so there's been this very weird dynamic where dealers have sort of, reoriented themselves around selling the loan, the insurance, the add-ons, all the other things. And the car is just a vehicle for doing that, much in the same way that you know Delta and uh, United are flying planes around, but it's really just a mechanism to get you to participate in their credit card scheme. Cars have become kind of similar. And my theory about that is that that also has created an incentive through the whole ecosystem for car prices to be higher, right? Because if the dealers want people to take out loans for cars, they're going to have a demand on the part of manufacturers for cars or models of cars that are more expensive. Yeah. And manufacturers are going to have an incentive to go, well, you know, if dealers can sell these, let's just go ahead and increase the price. And so I do think there has been some inflation in car prices 
that has had more to do with the incentives of the distribution of cars, disconnected from supply chain and inflation going up and other things, those obviously have also had an impact. So there's been this sort of like perfect storm of things. And the result has been auto lending has been way overheated for like five plus years. I mean, it's like been like way overheated. And you've definitely seen some of the savvier auto lenders starting to kind of tighten credit and kind of like tighten up their boxes. And I, I've seen that in the subprime space with the one main financials of the world. You see it more of the sort of near prime but prime space with Ally and Capital One and some of the big sort of indirect auto lenders. You even see it a little bit with the captive auto finance companies yeah. that are owned by the manufacturers and are trying to move as many of these vehicles as possible. Like the whole space is kind of overheated. And so I'm with you like, if you were to sort of guess what's the category of consumer lending that does cause a larger crack in the overall sort of lending performance, I, I think auto lending has to be the favorite by far. Yeah. The other thing too, and okay, so like, so I bought a new car and it was kind of an accident. I had a 2016 car and I took it in to get an oil change. And that, you know, the dynamics of that day or that month was that you know I had positive equity in my car weirdly so because used car prices were so hot they they were like please sell us your car they were like please sell us your car <laughs> we'll sell you a brand new car I like basically like kept the same car payment wow the car is more expensive because it has like more sensors and stuff but the one nice thing is that when you kind of buy a new car like you can only pay so much above sticker price right yeah. like the, the cars are more comparable right. And the financing is a little more like I think for me, the financing kind of works out a little bit better because they can't really mess around with like what the car is worth. And if you've seen used car prices to new car loan prices, I feel like the new cars have like lower interest rates, whatever. So that day I had weird positive equity in my car and sold in my car. (laughs) And so I I kind of and it had like 100,000 miles on it. Like I sold a 100,000 mile car with positive equity and it was like my down payment. And then to think that that was, it's weird that I did that. Like, it's weird that, you know, I walked in for an oil change and used car prices were so high. Demand for my 2016 car was going to be so high that I could just weirdly trade it in and keep like the same price, like the same claim. The other thing too, and like we saw this post Great Recession was that car, in order to make cars more affordable, they have stretched out the loan rate. Right. So you longer know, terms. Your car lot, six year and seven year car loans used to be really rare. And yeah. I actually think that's pretty common now. They are. In a way that kind of hides some of the affordability dynamics if you can just stretch out that loan term to be like half of a 15 year mortgage or right. like the average price of a student, you know, like a student loan that yeah. someone is going to pay back, right? Like yeah, you yeah. can have a your seven-year student loan. But there's like a there's a tail risk associated with those ones, right? Because like we used to give out auto loans on like five years or less. And our expectation was that like you weren't going to be stacking up too much debt. So I guess the concern would be you lengthen the term, you reduce the ability to pay crunch in the short term, but you're adding another level to the stack of debt that consumers can take on, right? Right. So it'll just be really interesting to see going forward, like how bad car delinquencies get. And yeah. again, this is like, you can't be surprised. <laughs> like, no, no. The surprise is that this ha- hasn't happened yet, right? Not that it's happening now. It is, you know, when you have these affordability, when you have these constraints, when you have the like weird incentives, right? Yeah. You will end up with delinquencies. 
Oh, yeah. And honestly, normalized delinquencies. It was unusual yeah. that credit losses were so low. So the question is just what's now normal? Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. And I think the other thing that'll be really interesting to see is where the crunch happens exactly, because like kind of tying it to the broader economic environment, like we've had great employment numbers, right? Which is surprisingly right. great employment numbers. Like Jay Powell's like, what the hell? You know, so like we've had really, really, really good employment numbers. But the I do wonder if we see some softening in employment, and particularly if that hits certain sectors of the economy that have been doing really, really well, right? So people who yeah. are more in like trade type jobs or, you know, more sort of like professions where there is a need for like a vehicle as a part of your profession. I feel like that might be where we see some of the cracks come in because a lot of the the reporting I've seen has been that people with maybe not crazy high incomes or really, really high FICO scores have been buying new cars at a much faster pace than they used to. And, yeah. you know, and I think part of it is the fact that employment in those sectors of the economy, unlike like tech, where we've had a lot of layoffs and stuff like employment in those sectors of the economy has been really, really strong. And so, you know, if, if you're a plumber or you're working in construction and, you know, you've been dealing with this old truck for a long time that works, but it's not very fun to drive and you want to buy a new truck, like, it's kind of a good time. It has been a good time to do that. And the dealer's like, yeah, no, just, you know, take out a seven-year loan on this new truck. So I kind of think that might be where we start to see some of the cracks, but it'll be dependent on the macro environment shifting and some of those employment numbers changing. And Andy, who knows? Maybe that doesn't happen. I don't know. Yeah. And the other thing about cars is they're pretty easy to seize. So yes, <laughs> we yes. do this kind of cycle a little bit faster than we would see CRE or see with homes. Yeah. It's easy to take repossession of a car and it's, pretty easy to resell a car. So those might be worked through a little faster. Okay, Kia, I have a question, an unanswerable question, a question I'm just like obsessing over recently. Are you ready for this question? Yes. Okay. What is the Bank Service Company Act, the BSCA, and why does it exist? And why is it suddenly something that's emerging into my life that I have to know about and talk about? Okay. So... You and me are struggle busting with this question. <laughs> we are. We are. So I know a little bit more than you, but not much. The, <laughs> By the, the way, that's not, that's like any topic in Bank Nerd Corner. That's basically the answer is like, he's but like, I don't know, know much, but I, I can educate you on this a little bit. Yeah. But you know what's interesting <laughs> is that like, I don't know that much about it and you don't know that much about it. And I think like that kind of indicates that probably like it's a sleeper topic. Yes. The Bank Services Company Act was passed in 1962 to address services provided to banks by non-bank parties. Yeah. It does not cover services provided by banks to non-banks, including fintechs. So it's basically like the vendors that banks use. Yep. And so you can imagine in 1962, the vendors that banks were using versus the today, the vendors that banks are using. There's been like just a world of change. And so basically this rule, as far as I can understand, allows examiners, bank regulators, to go examine or gives them the right to examine a company that is deemed a service provider. Yes. The law states that this, I mean, the original law states that this would have included check and deposit sorting and posting, computation, the posting of interest, the preparation and mailing of checks, statement, notices, and similar <laughs> items, which this 1962. tells you what was most important yeah. in 1962. But in federal institutions letter that was issued in 2019, this also allows the regulators to 
examine companies that are engaged in clerical, bookkeeping, accounting, statistical, or similar functions, including data processing, internet banking, and mobile banking services. Yeah. So we're talking about it because the supervisory parameter comes up a lot. What regulators can examine and enforce. And through what mechanisms, right? And through what mechanism. And then also, what is the responsibility of banks when it comes to their partners? Yes. But also, like, it doesn't come up in a way that, like, you and I are like, well, why wouldn't the regulator just use the BSCA? But recently, a regulator proposed that regulators use the BSCA to, and that they have authority through this act to directly supervise non-banks that work with banks. And that regulator is your favorite and mine, Governor Michelle Bowman of the Federal Reserve. And she suggested this because she was offering it as, like, criticism to regulators that are putting the pressure, they're turning the screws on banks for supervision yeah. of their non-bank partners. And she said, well, 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 we have we explored, dusted off this BSCA Act. And she called it underutilized, right? That's kind of how she referred to it. Yeah. Yeah. So Alex, for, you know, my question, you know, having told you this, one, <laughs> what was your reaction to kind of like, realizing or understanding or connecting the existence of this law to what you've been maybe hearing on the fintech side. Yeah. And what are your thoughts about, you know, the authority of the, what we know is the authority of the BSCA versus kind of what we see as examination regulation in the non-bank bank partner space? Yeah, it's a great question. So, I mean, the thing that I thought was really interesting about this is digging into the law a little bit. The way it essentially works is, the banks have to report on all of the technology service providers that they use. So they basically have to give a list to their regulator. And by the way, the BSCA is something that is sort of overseen by all regulators, coordinated through the FFIEC. And so it's like one of those ones where the CFPB, the OCC, the Fed, the FDIC, all of them essentially come together in this coordinated fashion to oversee technology service providers that banks report on that they use. And what's interesting is there are obviously some service providers that we all know who have been covered under this forever, right? So if you look at like the big core providers, as an example, you know, FIS, Fiserv, Jack Henry, they directly examined and overseen by regulators for a long time. And I think the thinking there is they present a systemic risk vector to banks because of like the market size that they have, right? And so I think the general parameter has been, hey, banks, you know, tell us all the technology service providers you use. We'll look across the list that everyone submits. And if enough of our banks that we oversee are using these different providers, they will sort of magically rise to that level where we then want to directly oversee them. And as you said, That started with kind of old school paper statements, calculating interest, mailing checks, that kind of stuff. And it evolved into online banking, mobile banking, sort of more modern core systems, that kind of stuff. There was some discussion starting, I think, in around 2020 and 2021 around the cloud providers. So like Amazon, Google, Microsoft being included under BSCA, which I believe they are now at least somewhat narrowly overseen by regulators under BSCA because there's a perception, I think rightly, that cloud providers are a systemically important provider to financial services. We saw after the data breach with Capital One that that was a result of them being on AWS, that like that raised some concerns about, hey, you know, the security of AWS and Amazon. So you do see this parameter sort of slowly expand over time. 
the thing, though, Pia, that you asked that I think is kind of what Governor Bowman is pointing at is she's essentially saying, hey, what if we just sort of dispensed with the idea that we should only examine companies that rise to that magical level of being sort of systemically important in banking? What if we instead looked at it as, hey, just any bank service providers that maybe represent like a category of banking or fintech that we find interesting or potentially dangerous, maybe we should look at them. Maybe any sort of new or novel, and I, I say novel because obviously the Fed has its own whole program based around novel supervision now, maybe anything that's kind of novel or interesting or scary, even if it's not systemically big at this point, we should look at it. We should use the BSCA to directly oversee those companies. And I don't know. I mean, I have no idea who she may be pointing at, but it does overlap very interestingly with the third-party risk management guidelines, right? So another thing that we saw last year was, I believe it was the Fed, OCC, and FDIC all sort of basically releasing joint guidance for banks on what you need to do to sort of correctly oversee all of the third parties that you work with, which would include many of these same service providers that are getting scooped up under BSCA. And could be on the list that yeah. Yay. Yeah. Yeah. Like th- those two lists probably overlap quite a bit, right? Maybe not entirely, yeah. but quite a bit. And I guess the thing that's really interesting there is, you know, the third party risk management guidelines, that's like essentially the regulators saying, hey, look, we're not going to oversee all these companies you use. You have to oversee them. And if you don't do that in a acceptable way, you're going to get in trouble. But by the same token, you know, and I think Governor Bowman, she has a delightful uh, tendency to point out these things in the regulatory apparatus where she's like, well, why are we asking banks to do this? Couldn't we just do this? And so like, the BSCA is essentially the answer to, hey, if we're really concerned about, let's just pick on a category, banking as a service and these like banking as a service middleware platforms, if we're concerned about those, why are we like trying to push this concern onto banks and have them regulate those platforms? Why don't we just get in there and start doing those exams? And and, yeah, I have no idea. Maybe you have a better understanding of like what those exams look like or how often they happen or what have you. I, I have no idea, but I do sort of get the sense if the rest of the regulatory infrastructure sort of follows Governor Bowman's lead here that maybe some new people will be finding out that they're being regulated under BSCI? So I think we're talking about it because a couple of other, you know, Bowman and then the head of the CSBS also spoke about the BSCI recently. Yeah, I think we haven't talked about it in the past because it's not being talked about. And that's kind of, I think, like where my head's at is like, I have a lot of questions about the BSCA and its enactment that I don't think we're talking enough about. And we should maybe have a better understanding of this law. And then, you know, also the understanding of like, what authority does this give regulators? So I came up with a unranked list of unanswered questions that I have. (laughs) And I'm going to share them with you. Okay. Because hopefully some of the listeners will drop into our DMs and answer them for us. And we can build our understanding to really understand what the super what's possible under the current supervisory regime and regulatory regime and then to understand again where and why regulators might have power that they don't want to use or do you know do I imagine that this is kind of like a tool that's more powerful than it is so yeah in no particular order what does it look like in 2024 to become subject to the BSCA how does the fintech find out that they're subject to it 
why doesn't the public know what companies are examined or on this BSCA examination list the way that we could probably ascertain via charter um, the examiners for a bank? I want that list so bad. And I looked extensively and you can find like individual references to it. So you can kind of piece together parts of it, but there is no list that's publicly available. I wonder like if someone's really, really good at SEC, like 10Ks and Qs, if fintech that's public says that they're subject to the BSCA as a risk yeah. factor, yeah, yeah, that's probably one of the only ways you can do it. The only the other way is to like a fintech just says, oh yeah, we were examined recently. Then you have to like be like, was it BSCA? Whatever. <laughs> right. Anyways, okay. so what is the exam cadence and what is examined during an exam? Yep. What do examiners look like? Look at how close does a BSCA exam resemble the due diligence that banks have to do on their fintech partners? Yep. Is this exam hard? What are the findings structure? Because I bet they don't use camels. So what is it like an ABC grade rating? Is it a numerical rating? Define the... define camels for people who are listening, by the way. Oh, gosh, you're gonna make me say it out. Okay, yes, I am. I it out. Don't just toss like these exotic acronyms. Okay, and make cam- it so I assume if you're listening to this podcast, you listen to previous podcasts and you remember what camels is. But camels is the financial is the system that bank examiners use to rate banks, smaller banks. It is an evaluation of six critical elements, capital adequacy, asset quality, management, earnings, liquidity, and sensitivity to market risk. So, so those are the components that a bank is rated on, and they are rated on a one to five scale, one being the highest, five being the lowest. And so Kia wants okay. to know what the camel equivalent is for technology service providers. Okay, no, that's fair. I mean, hopefully it's another like kick-ass acronym like elephant or hippo or something, but we'll we'll hope for Horse. that. Yeah, yeah, horse. horse. Yeah, could be. Unicorn. Okay. <gasps> unicorn. It should be unicorn. I mean, okay, I, I have to say, like, I don't know if they've come up with a clever acronym or a rating scale or whatever, but if the FFIEC and all of the regulars would like to put us on the job, Kia, I think you and I should volunteer to go in and come up with whatever acronym we need to to make it spell unicorn. Yes. Also, but don't you think that that's crazy that I don't know what the rating structure is? It is crazy. We should know that. That would be useful information. Okay. Well, like, no, it should absolutely be useful information. And and not to diverge on this, I'll get you back to your questions in just a sec. But like, hang on. One thing that's weird about this to me is the reason we don't disclose a lot of this stuff for banks is that we don't want someone's downgraded rating to drive a run at a bank, right? Like, we don't, it's a stability concern, essentially. And so, like, the reason we're sensitive to disclosing a lot of stuff from a bank regulator perspective in terms of their opinion about different banks is if you tell someone, then there's a run and then it sort of leads to instability. So you have to be sort of uh, quiet about it. And that same thing, by the way, that applies to, like, consent orders from regulators and all kinds of stuff. Like, there's this bias towards keeping stuff secret if we Confidential findings. Yeah, Yeah, confidential findings. I don't quite get, to be honest with you, why bank service providers get the same benefit of confidentiality, right? Because like, I get that like, you know, hey, if we come out and say your unicorn rating was a one, you know, AWS. (laughs) Oh, one is high. Okay, so it's a five. Sorry. Uh, Well, Kia, we can change it. We're the ones who are coming up with unicorns. We can make it whatever we want. But anyway, like if you have a low unicorn rating, that might be bad for your stock price, but like I don't, I guess I don't necessarily know why we should care quite as much about I that. I wonder being if you would say that. Okay, the one thing that I can think of is that if you revealed weakness in IT and cybersecurity settings, oh that is sure, a sure, flag, yeah, that you should hack this. Yeah, yeah, service yeah. provider. Here's that a has soft a target or confidential information about their bank providers. Right. 
So I can see it being that way or, you know, like, hey, they have really weak financial accounting. Go commit a bunch of fraud, right? Like, (laughs) Right, right. That's fair. Go embezzle this particular fintech's money. Right. Still, but, I'd like to yeah. know. I'd like to know who's on the list. You know what I mean? Like, well, so I, I don't. I don't necessarily like, need to know their ratings, but like, who's on the list? Yes. Okay. So okay. I have more questions. Go. I'm gonna. We're already at more <laughs> at an hour. So <laughs> keep going. Finish my question. Okay. So to your question, what are the penalties examiners can assign, assign during these exams? Yeah. And do fintechs that fail have to divest or inform their bank partners? Are exam findings confidential? Can a fintech tell their bank partner? about their exam findings and should a fintech promote that they've been examined if they've had a good exam? Yeah. Or just that they are examined. Like, hey, I'm on the list. Like, you know, that should be comforting to you. Yeah. How do regulators connect, if at all, the BSCA to the third-party risk management guidance? Yep. So I went back to the risk, you know, third-party risk management guidance, and it's mentioned once in the whole policy or whatever, which is in the discussion section that several commenters also suggested that agencies use their existing authority, such as the BSCA, to address the risks of what those commenters perceived as systemically important third-party service providers or otherwise assist banking organizations, third-party risk management efforts. So some people are actually making this connection and have told the regulator that they want this. They see a connection. They see, you know, virtuous efforts. And the regulator has in some ways acknowledged that that some people think that that exists. So it's interesting to just disclose that and then not say anything else about it. Can I add one thing to that real quick? So when I was going through all of the comment letters for the CFPB's rulemaking on 1033 for open banking, one of the things that came up a lot, both from banks and fintech companies, was essentially this question of, well, who is going to regulate authorized third parties who are getting access to this bank account information, right? Because you don't want consumers just going, yeah, hey, random company that I came across, you've convinced me to give you my bank account information. So here you go. You have permission to pull all my bank information. Like We want to have some level of supervision and sort of maybe certification of authorized third parties that can get access to open banking data. And what was interesting in the comment letters, there was sort of a weird level of consistency across both banks and fintech companies because they didn't agree on much in their comment letters. But one point of agreement was they basically just said, hey, CFPB, why don't you do that? Like, why are you making us oversee all these authorized third parties? Why doesn't a regulator regulate? Well, yeah. (laughs) And like, they were like, hey, like, what if you just did this? And so it kind of ties back to this thing where it's like under BSCA, they could basically say, hey, anyone who wants to get access to bank data, we view you as a service provider to the bank in the sense that you're accessing their technology stack and you're getting access to their data. We're going to have some type of supervision or certification or examination process for you. So to your point, like there's all these areas where regulators are like, yeah, no, you you should oversee that. And the banks and fintech companies are like, well, like, why is that our job? So anyway, keep going. It's funny because I it just generally has like someone should do something energy. It really does. Like, it really does. Hey, what? Yeah, um, yeah, okay. no, it really does. I'm so close to being done with my questions. Oh. I do have a lot of them. I will hopefully like the answers to these questions should inform some reporting and also should probably inform some regulatory response and the supervision landscape. Okay. Absolutely. Three more questions. Why, if regulators have this authority and the FDIC also has its service provider examination program, do you think regulators want banks to per- instead provide the direct oversight of their partners? Do you think they're using, regulators are using their full existing powers to their full potential? And if not, why? Where would you place the supervisory parameter now and would you move it forward or backwards? 
Is it getting bigger or smaller? And then how close do we think the BSCA is to Chopra's efforts at the CFPB to supervise non-bank payment facilitation? So these are my unanswered questions that will keep me up at night and the strings that I will be pulling on to try to get to the bottom of some of these answers. Because to think about, you know, this tool that exists, this authority that exists, yeah. and how, like, what does it mean that it exists? And yet we have things like the third-party risk management oversight, and we have these consent orders that are charging banks with inadequate oversight. And, you know, kind of what's possible in our current, you know, non-bank banking landscape and the role that regulators play in it. So, Alex, I don't know if you have any questions. Those are just the questions I came up with this morning. That, no, you um, covered it. So. <laughs> yeah, no, no. You you covered it. Uh, for anyone listening who has insight into the answers to any of those questions or other questions we should have on our list, please slide into our DMs because we are very, very curious about the good old BSCA passed in 1962. Yeah, we'll keep the list. Like, this, if we need to make that list, like, I will start a Google Doc, you know, I'll share it. But, you know. Oh, yeah. No, I well, and like, as we said before, we are very willing to get involved in the acronym making for a rating system related to this. And we have some good ideas. <laughs> so just call on us. We have our hand raised. We're ready to go. Kia, before I let you go, one last thing, which is a rant, and you hinted at it before, but something you want to go off on as it relates to stock prices. So Kia, the floor is yours. Yeah. So I alluded this to this earlier that after New York Community Bank announced its fourth quarter earnings, and then after Moody's announced the downgrade, of the bond rating, the stock has sold off a lot. It's down 60% from January 30th, and which is fine. But the stock price is becoming a proxy for the bank's financial condition. Yeah. And the, you know, the characterization goes that the stock is down, so therefore that the bank is troubled. Yep. And, you know, I'm sure at some point it was the bank is troubled, therefore the stock is down. But now it's the stock is down, the bank is troubled. And arguably, as I've said, you know, the bank's not in a great financial position right now, but I think also to say that the bank's financial condition is troubled is also like kind of a pretty loaded characterization. So I'm just going to quote really quickly a January 6th article from the Wall Street Journal. You know, the results have rattled bank investors, which who have been on edge since Signature, Silicon Valley, and First Republic failed in 2023. Sharp stock sell-offs have added to a crisis of confidence that ultimately led to the fatal deposit runs at those banks, which had large amounts of uninsured deposits, concentrated customer bases, and paper losses on their bond portfolio. So I don't think that that's like explicitly wrong, but that is not the most accurate and like characterization. Stock sell-offs complicated SVB's failure, but what led to SVB's failure was not the stock runoff. And the stock runoff is really only relevant because SVB was actively raising capital and the capital raise could not be priced because they had raised capital after announcing the restructure. They were trying to raise capital after restructure. That's kind of the only reason why you actually really care about the stock price. SVB fails in two days because they had like $100 billion of deposits leaving the bank. It had almost nothing to do with stock. Signature fails and its stock doesn't move really that much at all. The two banks that I, First Republic, different bank, six weeks. Obviously, there's an earning call in between. I think actually the earnings call was probably its catalytic event. But again, the stock price doesn't really matter. It's deposits. And then the other two institutions that I would be really interested in are 
PacWest, which ends up selling likely as a distressed seller, and then Western Alliance, which is kind of grouped in with the signature SVB First Republic and survives. We actually don't really know in the banking industry the relationship between deposit runoff and stocks. And I would guess that is because most depositors in a bank aren't shareholders. And they, in fact, don't wake up every single day and say, are my deposits safe? And it's actually really bad when they do ask themselves that question. But that we have just seen a pretty like interesting and I would argue lazy conflation between a bank's stock price and the direction of that price and financial health. And I think it's honestly dangerous that it is unusual to see a re- any relationship at all. I would also argue that we don't see very many positive relationships. Like we don't have like deposits grew a lot, so then deposit or so then stocks increase. This is a very specific one unilateral direction relationship, but I would ar- argue then like isn't really a relationship. And then, so I just really can't handle the discussion I'm seeing around bank stocks right now, specifically in New York community, because it's actually just not really relevant. Other than like, I guess if the bank tries to raise capital right now, if they raise debt, that's where these figures matter. But it's just the laziest wave at sentiment that is negative right now. And I'm so sick of seeing it in in close proximity to discussions around the bank's financial health and, and uh, earnings. All right. So I could not agree more. And allow me to build on your rant if I can Please. for a second. Yeah. Let's experience. All right. So this was like six months ago, maybe a little longer, but I, I posted in my newsletter or maybe on social, but I sort of tossed out this premise that I was thinking about writing about PayPal. And my perception of PayPal as a business was that it wasn't a very good business. And the thought around it was really that like they've done all this stuff but they've never really like pulled everything that they've done into a cohesive whole. So they buy Braintree, which had just bought Venmo. And so they end up sort of accidentally stumbling backwards into all of these great sort of assets that they have. And then when Dan Schulman was in charge, they were getting into crypto and stable coins and building super apps and doing all this stuff. And so it was like a million different things, all of which were kind of on their own, cool or interesting. But I was seeing this sort of lack of cohesion in their strategy. And so I, I sort of, kind of hinted at like, hey, you know, would love to write a piece on kind of like why PayPal has kind of missed the boat or like what's wrong with PayPal. And what was interesting was when I posted that, and again, this was like six months, a year ago, something in that range, the reaction to it was like, what the hell are you talking about? Like, PayPal's great. You know, this is unfair. Like, why are you being mean to PayPal? PayPal's a great business, all this kind of stuff. And I was like, okay, you know, like I'm maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. You know, like I, you know, this is just me looking at the company. I'm I'm trying to figure out my answer to this question, but it feels like they kind of have missed the boat. And so then you fast forward to today, and everyone is crapping all over PayPal, right? And they had like their big uh sort of we're gonna shock the world set of announcements that weren't actually very shocking. And then their stock price went down because they sort of, I guess, mismanaged investors' expectations and Dan Schulman is gone and Alex Chris has come in and he's sort of trying to kind of refactor the business and make it make sense. And now everyone from a sentiment perspective is like, oh, you know, PayPal, like, oh my God, they're terrible and what's wrong with them and whatever. And it's like nothing fundamental about their business has changed from a year ago to today. Like literally it is exactly the same. 
And yet the sentiment about PayPal could not be more different. And it really bothers me because like, there, there's this weird thing of whatever you think about a business, if what you think about it is not directionally correct with what the stock is doing, you're an idiot. And if what you think about the business is consistent with what the stock is doing at that moment, you're a genius. And to your point about it, it's such a lazy way to try to understand what these companies are doing. And yet, the more that we sort of make it easier for people to participate in the stock market, not just making trades, but like constantly tracking what's happening. And I think the best expression of this are the company tags in Twitter, where like if you tag it as like, you know, little uh, dollar sign SoFi, like, like, yeah, the cash tags, like if you'd use those tags, people just come out of the woodwork and they're like, well, what do you mean? What's your take on this business? What's your position on this business? Like, I don't have a position on this business. I'm not talking my book on this business. I just have uncorrelated opinions looking at this business that have nothing to do with the stock price. Another example of this is, and I've written about this in my newsletter and I've gotten myself into trouble with people on Twitter and LinkedIn about this, but you know, like FICO is a really good example of this, right? FICO, ever since it went public in the late 80s, has just crushed its earnings quarter after quarter after quarter. It's a machine in terms of its earnings. And so when you talk about FICO, sometimes I'll talk about you know the business. I wrote a piece on it a little while ago. And I'll sort of talk about like the material things about the business. Like what do they do? What drives its business model? What underpins the strength of that model? How might some of those things be changing? And what's funny is whenever I talk about that stuff or I write about it, people are like, well, you're a moron. And it's like, okay, why though? And they're like, well, look at the stock price. And I'm like, okay, right. But like the stock price what by itself, it does, yeah, it has nothing to do with the underlying strength or weakness of the business. And you can disagree with like my fundamental analysis of FICO as a business. It's entirely possible. I'm completely off base. But don't just point at the stock price and go, well, you must be wrong. That's stupid. The whole joke is that stock prices are supposed to be discounted future earnings. <laughs> That is a, that is a joke. That is a joke. That's a hilarious joke. Yes, that's what stock prices are supposed to indicate, yes. and they're supposed to be like on a price to earnings basis. And we're supposed to look at the valuations, and like that is just untethered from the reality of how most people think that what stock price indicates about a company. Yes, and so like you know, I think you and me are both indicating like we see this as noise, and we do not see it as anything useful that tells us anything about a company other than sentiment that could change on a dime yes. for reasons that have very little to do with the operating strength of a company and, in fact, probably front-run any sort of tangible earnings and direction, right? Like, buy on the rumor, sell on the news, right? <laughs> right. So you can have these, like, sent it's like these waves of sentiment yeah. that go up and down. And they, I mean, and you know what? More power to people who make money doing that and who find this to be like, who want to who wanna ride that wave and right. kind of figure out where people are. But if like, that's not where your head is at, like you can't make that informative or useful. Well, and, it, and stop pretending. It is what it is. No, I'm not going to put meaning on to it. I totally agree. I mean, like that's the thing that bothers me is like, if you want to invest, fine. Like invest, like that's great. People should invest in the stock market, like no problem. But I am really getting sick of people pretending to be experts on things when they're actually talking their book, right? And like, let me give you an example of what I would like. And this is me like 
theoretically, in a perfect world, what I would want is it would be nice if we could replace, let's just pick on Twitter as an example. It'd be nice if we could replace Twitter with an exact replacement that works exactly the same way, except the algorithm either inflates or depresses the visibility of the insights that you share on the platform entirely based on your portfolio of stocks that you own. So if you yeah, are how much money you make Yeah, on this? like and like if you are invested in this thing and then you post content about that company, that should go down to the very bottom. And people who and you know like I I'm sure I'm in a diversified sense invested in a lot of these companies but like I don't have concentrated holdings in really any of the companies that I talk about. And so I would like it, quite frankly, when I talk about PayPal, I'd like you to take me seriously because I'm just looking at it in terms of the business with no talking my book associated with it. By the way, in a private market context, this is exactly the same thing that we see with VCs, right? And I there are some VCs out there that are incredibly smart. They're like the smartest people that I know. But it really does bother me when they won't be intellectually honest about what's happening in the market because yeah. doing so would be talking against their book or not supporting whatever companies are in their portfolio. And it's like, I just can't take you seriously if you can never venture an opinion that's not connected to a company that you're invested in. And so much of what I see on Twitter and Substack and everything is just people talking their book and it drives me crazy. Well, okay, you talked about opinions just also, again, reminded me <laughs> I'm the worst of this disclosure, but everything I've said is actually my opinion. But the other thing you should know that whenever I make that disclosure, that what I'm saying is representing my opinion and not the opinion of my employer. I also like as a journalist abide by, I should not have financial stakes totally. in any company I cover. So, and that really comes from, you know, like I used to work at S&P Global Market Intelligence, yep. S&P is also a ratings agency. And that company took it really, really seriously to one, like just make sure that it was the hardest thing in the world for a journalist to talk to someone on the rating side because oh, yeah. of the non-confidential, non-confidential nature of the, the job. But also because they, you know, we they made it very laborious to own individual shares because right. it was just such a conflict of interest for journalists to own, to have any individual stake in any company, even if you didn't have private information. It just isn't a good look. And so, you know, to me, I'm sitting here just talking about banks and trying to talk about banks in the most accurate way possible and in the most useful way possible. And so when I'm seeing this New York community or when I'm seeing, you know, when I like trigger all the SoFi bros, yeah. I don't care if you make or lose money. Right. I'm not trying to drive the stock price anywhere, yeah. right? Like I, I have no skin in the game, zero. So I think that, you know, but the easiest way it's, you know, for me to do that is, I just discount most people talking about share price because you have to. The joke is that earnings is not what's driving share price these days. And so if that's not, if I'm looking at bank earnings and I'm looking at balance sheets and financial health, I really can't be looking at things that don't tell me about that and are in fact probably the opposite of that information. Yeah, no, I, I could not agree more. I talked about this on a different podcast with Frank Rotman at QED, but the idea that the stock market is becoming a game that is utterly disconnected from reality. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, you know, and, and his point in talking about it was that AI is going to get so good at playing the game that it's going to be able to basically like ruin the game and we're going to have to change the whole system. And so candidly, I can't wait for that to happen because I really am just super well, sick of seeing of taste in your mentions. Oh God. I mean, it's just like, like all of this stuff I was reading about lending club and SoFi and kind of contrasting the two. And I, I was doing some research and I kind of got sucked into Twitter and 
It was insane. It was like a religious debate. It had no bearing on reality whatsoever. And people were like screaming at each other. So yeah, the getting away from talking our book and just like genuinely saying what we think with no financial incentive attached to it would be a lovely world to live in. Kia, I appreciate as always you taking the time in your, just your opinion, not correlated to your employer or to your stock ownership right right right. i mean i know i know your like big nvidia position has been doing really well but like we don't talk about like you know uh we don't talk about any of that stuff so like yeah yeah so you're you're doing fine like that's over there this is over here and i can't wait to do this again uh about a month from now kia as always a delight to talk to you thank you all right thanks for having me thank you for listening to this episode of fintech takes Stay up to date with emerging companies and the latest fintech trends by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts. And if you love fintech takes, please tell a friend.